And so if you can turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 21 is where we'll be this morning. I'm going to read this for us, and then we're going to jump into things and uh, hopefully have a good time. Hopefully this isn't just me nerding out on some things, but this is an enjoyable series for you as well. So beginning in verse 12, it says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir up, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, we thank you once again for this day. Lord, as we study your word, show us your truth, help us to have understanding. And, and God, I do pray that we would be emboldened by uh, the truth of your word to uh, share our faith, to be bold, and to be able to ultimately grow uh, in our spiritual maturity, Lord. And so, God, we're grateful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I might have shared this story before, but years ago, a few years ago, I was working at a church and... Uh, I, had a, I wore a lot of hats, but because I used to be a musician uh, full-time, all that kind of stuff, and this church was a pretty large church, um, we could go to youth camp and pretty much just use, like, internal staff uh, to form our worship bands for our camp. So we rarely ever, like, contracted out a band. It was always, uh, you know, internally and things like that. And so uh, while the church was filled with guitarists and drummers and bass players, things like that, keyboard players were... Uh, maybe a harder commodity to come by and so I typically got asked to go to youth camps and play keys and so I got to stop being a campus pastor, missions pastor um, and worship director which were the three hats that I um, uh, held for this church and uh, go go be a a youth camp rock star um, in a worship band. Fun times. I actually enjoy that. A lot more fun to just play and then uh, not have responsibilities and is to have responsibilities at camp so uh, I would do my sessions. That being said, we were at a camp, uh, or hosting our camp at Lake Tomahawk, uh, which is in Giddings, Texas. And in Giddings at Lake Tomahawk uh, encampment, they've got this uh, zip line, like ropes course zip line type thing. You crawl up, climb up to the top of a tower, then jump off. Uh, and you can either zip line or they've got like a, a bungee tied to you and you can just jump off and land on your feet. Now, I'm hanging out with a friend of mine, Heidi. Uh, she was one of our fire bass players for the church, and she was playing bass for the weekend. And uh, me and Heidi were 
hanging out with students, you know, doing our whole thing, you know, during free time, like, oh, yeah, they're, you know, they're middle school, it was a middle school camp, so they're out there thinking we're the coolest people in the world. And so at a certain point, I'm looking at Heidi, and Heidi's looking at me, and it's like, all the kids are like, do the ropes course, do the ropes course. And I'm like, Lord have mercy, here we go. I watch some people climb up, I watch them jump off the top, I watch them go down the zip line, it's like this whole thing, uh, it was perfectly fine. Climbing up was not very hard, I mean, it was like this whole thing, you're doing some rope ladder stuff and up some rock wall-esque type things, and you know, I did that part pretty easy. And then I got to the top, and it was interesting because I had been there for 30 or 45 minutes at the bottom, hanging out with students, watching them climb to the top and jump off and do their thing, and yet, um, you know, when it came time for me to jump off the top, it was not as easy as you would think. And the part that was crazy is I was down there with the staff, I watched them uh, tie the bungee cords and the things and do everything right. I got up to the top, I saw everybody else jump, I actually went first, Heidi was like, you know, uh, you, you go uh, kill yourself first. And so, you know, like I do this whole thing, uh, and yet when it came time for me to jump, I didn't I, I mean, I eventually jumped, but I didn't jump the first time. Um, I did a whole bunch of, all right, here we are, you know, and I was probably up there for 10 minutes before I finally jumped off this platform. Uh, the thing that was interesting, that's crazy, is I've actually been at this camp since I was a kid. Uh, and I've seen this same ropes course thing over and over again. And it's always interesting that when it comes to faith, it's not about whether or not you've seen somebody else do it. It's not about whether or not uh, you've seen and tested that the whole thing works. At, the, at our very best, even when we've seen everything come together, you still ultimately have to have faith and jump off the platform. And the things that we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks, and even today as we talk about the New Testament, uh, we will cover a lot of things. Certainly a lot of things. But at the end of the day, I'm going to present to you reasons why I think you can trust the Bible. Um, is accurate and the things that it teaches. But at a certain point, it's not about facts. It's not about archaeology. It's not about geology. You ultimately have to uh, have faith and jump into these things. And this isn't just a conversation for somebody who's not a Christian. I believe that for us as believers, if God's word is true and accurate, then that is going to have implications for our lives. And we ultimately are consistently challenged on whether or not we're going to trust God's word for what it is and what it says. So that being said, uh, our, our main idea here today is this. I'm going to sum this thing up, is that I believe that God guided the faithful preservation of his words so that we might have assurance of our faith. Oftentimes when people talk about faith, we act as if it's just this blind faith that God is calling us to blindly just trust him. I don't believe that to be true. I believe that God does require faith for us, but if he wanted to have us just blindly believe things, then he wouldn't go out of his way to consistently give us assurances as to why we should believe. You see it with Gideon when he says, oh, mighty warrior, and you're going to do all these things. When, when Gideon needs a test on whether or not he should believe, he puts the fleece out and the dew and all that kind of stuff. Like God is fully ready and available to help assure his faith. When he sees Moses uh, 
and he calls him out with the burning bush, he once again demonstrates for himself to Moses that he is worthy of his faith and trust. And these things continuously happen all over and over and over again throughout Scripture. And I believe not just that, when it comes to the Word of God, when it comes to the Bible, God doesn't just require us to blindly believe it, but I believe, and we'll, as we go through these things here today, that not only does God want us to trust his word, but he went out of his way to ensure that the compiling of scripture, the Bible, his word as we have it, is unlike any other document that exists in human history. So, we're going to get into this here today. If what the Bible says is true, then there are going to be implications for our lives. The first is this. If the testimony of Scripture is true, then first of all, the content is life-changing. If, 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 what, if, if what Scripture is saying about God, Jesus, redemption, man, humanity, all these things, atonement, is true, then the content that's within the 66 books of scripture is life changing. In this particular passage, Peter is talking, and this we know for a fact that we kind of see it in what he says here around verses 13 and 14, but we do know this to be true, that essentially Peter is aware that he is going to be dying soon. And so he's writing these words to the church. Now, this particular letter isn't exactly addressed to a specific church. But he does kind of mention at the beginning of this that like, uh, uh, like I've written you before, we do know that in 1 Peter he wrote uh, his letter to Asia, the churches in Asia Minor. And so uh, it's probably true that he, if he's saying that he's written a letter to them before, uh, that I'm going to write this, I'm writing a second letter to you again or uh, following up on things uh, before. So we kind of have this idea, but it, that doesn't really so much matter as it is that Peter knows that he will be dying soon. Now, we know through, from uh, history that Peter died under Emperor Nero, just like uh, Paul did. Uh, within a few years of each other uh, during his great persecution of the church. Uh, somewhere between, I don't know, 65 to 70 AD-ish, uh, somewhere in that time range. Uh, church tradition says that Peter believed that he was not worthy to be crucified the same way as the Lord was, so they, he had, was flipped upside down uh, in order to uh, you know, die a death that was worthy of Christ. But that being said, he says in this particular thing, since I know that, putting up, that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And so, you know, like he's writing these things and it's this idea that like what I'm saying is important and I need for you to understand this. And if you understand, it's going to change or, or inform how you live when I'm not here. It, you know, uh, as, a, as a kid growing up, there was a time uh, my, my, my brother was singing in the Houston Boy Choir. My mom was the kind of the, the wardrobe manager for the Houston Boy Choir. And they, every summer they go on a tour right when the school year ends somewhere around the world. Sometimes it's in the U.S., sometimes it's overseas. Uh, this particular one, I actually can't remember where they were going, but I wasn't quite old enough yet uh, singing in the Houston Boy Choir to go on this trip. My brother was going, my mom was going, my grandma was at home, and so I was staying at home with my grandma. Before my mom left for eight days, eight or nine days, um, she, 
began to give me instructions like this is where this is, these are where these numbers are, these are these things because if anything happens, I need for you to know where things are. And so uh, Peter is talking to the church in a similar way. He's like, look, I'm going to die. I know this. Jesus told me. And so uh, I need for you to understand these things. I need for you to see these things because if you take hold of these things, then even if I'm not here, you will know how to live. That's what he's doing here. And it is true that if the content of, and the testimony of Scripture is true, then the content is going to be life-changing. If what the Bible says is true, then it will change how you operate as a son, daughter, friend, coworker, neighbor, it's going to change your, as, your aspirations in life, your hopes, your dreams, everything that you work towards. Christianity is not this idea that I can be generally religious on Sundays and then be detached the rest of the week. But if the testimony of what we see in Scripture is true, then it's not just something that you do on a Sunday. It's something that should have an impact on who you are throughout the week who you are in your day-to-day life. All of that, though, I think is set up for our second point as we really get into things, is that if the testimony of Scripture is true, it's not just that the content is life-changing, but I need to understand this. If the testimony of Scripture is true, then secondly, God guided how it came together. If it's true, then God's hands are ultimately the ones guiding how these words were recorded and put together. When we get to this thing, why do we believe the Bible? Look, oftentimes, oftentimes when it comes to these things, we have, we've got like a, I tried this and so it must work mentality. And as much as I love old churchy language and things like that, I tried them and I know it and all that kind of stuff, that's, That's not the greatest rubric for understanding why it is true. Uh, Here's a great example. Trying something and it working does not necessarily, correlation and causation are not the same thing. That's what I mean to say here. Uh, When I was a kid, I had this belief, and uh, Austin knows some of my sports superstition. He's experienced some of this um, in recent years. But I had this belief when I was a kid that however things began when the game started, I had to maintain that. So for instance, if I didn't start watching the Rockets play and they were winning, and then I turned on the TV and they started losing, then it was my belief that I was the reason why they were losing, so I would turn off the TV. Austin laughs because he knows this about the Astros getting eliminated. Uh, All the games that they lost were the games that I hadn't started watching, and then I came in the middle of the game and it was what it was, and I'm really sorry, Astros. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I did it. It's my fault. Here's the thing, though. I tried it, and it worked. And every time I would just turn the TV back off, then the Rockets would make their run and win the game. And I was like, all right, fine. Well, I have to stop watching the game. Now, you guys are all laughing because that's absurd. But the whole point is that if I tried something and it worked, and then from that I extrapolate that that must then be true, you can run into all kinds of things. And by the way, I need us to understand this. One does not need to have simply the Bible to stop from drinking, to free themselves from addiction, to put a regiment of order into their lives. 
Now, I believe that Jesus informs and gives ultimate purpose to these things. But there are plenty of people who have tried other things and found some semblance of peace or uh, normalcy within their life. The claim for us is not just that if you try Jesus, that he works. If you try Jesus and it works, then there's a much bigger thing that's going on here. It's that the testimony is true and God has guided how it all came together. Verses 16 through 18 are very interesting. I want to read these and then to give us context before we go into a lot of things here with the Bible. But it says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Need us to understand what we have here in Scripture. A lot of times people are, you know, uh, when they have doubts about the Bible, they're like, well, a bunch of guys just made it up, right? And so they just wrote things and it changed over time. Uh, there's no way that what the guy actually wrote 2,000 years ago is exactly what we have here today. Hasn't it changed over time? And all these Bible translations... Aren't we just like looking at like, like we, first we had the King James and somebody looked at that and then they translated it into more basic English and X, Y, and Z. Like, isn't that how we got the current translation that you use? And ultimately, I would say that that is a very formidable um, challenge to scripture if you don't understand how we got scripture. First of all, uh, Let's get into this. Why do we believe the Bible? First and foremost, uh, we've talked about this before, but I'll emphasize it again. These accounts of what Jesus did, well, just looking at the New Testament, these accounts of what Jesus did were firsthand eyewitnesses to the things that happened in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Vodi Bakum says it better than I do uh, ever could in his book, The Ever-Living Truth. I have this quote for you if you want to take pictures of it when it comes up on the screen. He says, I choose to believe the Bible because it's a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They reported supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claimed that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. That's exactly what we have, what, Paul, what Peter is saying here. He's saying, look, we didn't make this thing up. I was there, and so were they. We were all standing there. Everybody heard these vo the voice of God. We saw these things. We could touch Jesus with our hands. We walked with him. We saw him die. He showed back up again. We watched him ascend into the sky. We saw angels appear. We were firsthand witnesses. And it goes so far, even in Luke, the book of Luke, which, by the way, Luke is not one of the 12 disciples, but uh, he is adjacent and uh, clearly a part of the church in Antioch that Paul uh, came, uh, and Barnabas came out of uh, that helped to lead the, the missionary journeys to uh, establish the church outside of Jerusalem. But even he says at the beginning of Luke, 
Well, yeah, we've got other accounts. There's uh, Mark and Matthew and Luke, but or, and John. But I thought it right to give an account. But I specifically, his intention in the first couple of verses, he says, I want to give a, a sequential order to the way in which things happen. Luke, we know, was a doctor, and he went around then interviewing people and putting a chronological order of Jesus' of uh, 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 miracles, teaching his events in order. You're like, wait, they didn't actually all do that? No, they all had different purposes for why they were writing their Gospels. And in particular, uh, they had thematic themes that they were, doing, that they were uh, doing. Matthew was writing to a primarily Jewish audience. So he's bringing out stories that would have been important to a Jewish audience. Mark, who also was not one of the 12 disciples, but was discipled by Peter, by the way, he's the same Mark that's the center of the split between Paul and Barnabas in the book of Acts because he abandoned them uh, uh, when they dealt with a little bit of persecution. Somehow later he turns his life around. Uh, but in spending time being discipled by Peter, what he's written down is his account by Peter. That's, by the way, why his uh, general version of things, even when they cover the same stories of Jesus' life, Mark's is a lot shorter. Peter was much more to the point, short, all that kind of stuff. So his version of things is a lot shorter than the other guys. Everybody else tends to add other things. John was fighting Gnosticism within the Roman Empire, and we see that in his, uh, his, uh, his opening of the book of John. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word became flesh. All things that Gnostics would never believe. So they believed that the flesh was corrupted and the spirit was, uh, was, was elevated and holy. And so there was no way that a holy God would ever come in the flesh. So the first thing that John does is come out and say, wrong. And so they all had different purposes for why they were writing what they were writing. And so we get to this whole thing that it's ultimately the Bible and in the New Testament is eyewitnesses talking about what they saw in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses who could have contradicted each other. And at least some of them, like Luke, would go and interview other people in order to get the right sequential to go, uh, order of events to go say, well, this person supposedly was blind. Were you actually blind? Let me talk to your family. Let's get all these things. Let me write down these reports and go interview the people to put this together because even he understood that it would be important to be able to corroborate the stories the disciples were telling. More so than that, though, as we look at the Bible as a whole, I need you to understand this. The Bible is a collection of 66 books with more than 40 authors from various walks of life, from soldiers to kings, shepherds, written over the course of 1,500 years on three continents, telling one story about how the God who created the world loved us and had a plan to redeem those whose relationship had been broken. And, and so I hope you realize, like, the Bible is an incredibly unique book in its collection and God has guided the process by how we got the scriptures. The New Testament itself was originally primarily written in Greek. And when it comes to the, the Bible, look, 
for all these letters and epistles and things like that, I'm going to be honest with you. We don't actually have the original copies of any of them. That's okay, though. So we don't typically have the original copies of most things. What we do have, though, are copies. And this becomes important for us as we talk about manuscripts and things like that. You're going to nerd out with me here this morning just a little bit. But when it comes to manuscripts, this is actually particularly important for us. And I'm going somewhere with all of this. This is particularly important for us because what we can do is know, not just when, a, generally speaking, what a letter is written, but when we have copies and we can date them in light of other things, it lets us know, like, when people wrote things down, when did they start making copy of, copies of it? And let's say we find a copy that was written 200 years afterwards. And then later on, we find a manuscript copy that was written 50 years afterwards, and we compare those things. We can see, well, like, how faithful was the copying of these things from one to the other? And the closer these things are to the other, and the sheer number of them that we have helps us to be fairly certain that what we have is accurate. When it comes to the New Testament and it comes to manuscripts, I want you to understand that there are over 5,500 copies of manuscripts in pieces and in part you're a little bit ahead of me boom there you go uh in pieces or in part um uh for the new testament in general most of the new testament these eyewitnesses were written somewhere between ad 50 and ad 90 the earliest fragment p52 dates back to about AD 120. So the earliest piece of scripture that we have, manuscript, is about 120, which, by the way, puts it around 30 years after the last book was written itself. We have about another uh, 50 or so fragments that come together within the first 150 to two years, 200 years after they were written. That might sound like a lot to you, but in a second, I'll show you a chart to help you understand how that compares to other historical documents. But that's actually incredibly remarkable. And it's not just that we have 5,500 copies. That's far and away more than anything else. And then when you take the other languages that they copied it into, not just the Greek manuscripts and things like that, <clears throat> but you include Latin and various other languages that they were copied into. The number of copies of manuscripts that we have of the New Testament actually numbers somewhere between 18,000 and 25,000. Here's the part that gets even crazier. The early church fathers were all about quoting scripture. And they didn't just quote scripture a little bit. They quoted scripture so much that even if we didn't have the manuscripts... We could actually recreate almost the entire New Testament simply by taking their quotations from their writings and letters to each other. Because the early church fathers, those first couple hundred years, cited the New Testament over 86,000 times in their internal letters and writings and documents and things to each other. No other work even comes close. Let me show you something. Here we go. 
just to uh, nerd out, I got a, a, great, a great little chart for you here. Boom! Uh, I want you to compare the New Testament to other works. We have, uh, for instance, things like the writings of Tacitus. Earliest manuscripts were written somewhere to 850 to 1,000 years uh, 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 after they lived. And so there's a gap of 750 years. And the total number of manuscripts is 36. Uh, you can see things like Plato, Caesar's Gaelic Wars, uh, uh, Livy's History of Rome, and probably what does the most, Homer's Iliad. Earliest manuscript, 415 B.C., 400-year gap of time from when it was written to when we have a manuscript. We have 1,900 of them, and yet the New Testament itself our earliest manuscript is in 125 A.D. It's a 30-year difference from when it was written. We have 5,856 manuscripts. It's not even close, y'all. Nobody of worth their salt in history questions the accuracy and reliability of any of these documents. And yet, when it comes to the New Testament, people have problems. But God, in preserving his word, has had it be like no other document in the history of humanity. He guided its preservation. He guided the scribes who were, whose job was to sit there every single day and copy, 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 copy. It would not be an enjoyable life for me, but it was uh, what they did. And they believed at the time that they were copying the words of God. So they took great care in order to do it and took great care not to change it. That does not mean that if you are copying by hand every single day that you did not make mistakes. I mean, any one of us could miss punctuation in the comma if we were writing the same sentences over and over and over every single day. But the sheer volume in the number of manuscripts helps us to see and understand the great care and the accuracy and precision that they took to record to us the very words of God. And this matches up with what Peter says here. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The third thing I'll tell you about this though. Is that if the testimony of scripture is true. Then God's hand orchestrated our history. It's not just that God orchestrated like the <laughs> how the words came together. That means that he was at work in our history. These last couple of verses from Peter become particularly interesting because I think that they're going to they're, they're, they're set something up for us. In verse 19 he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, prophecy. Uh, this is actually something that sets the word of God apart. This is not just that divine claims are made in the New Testament. It's that the New Testament writers went out of their way to show that prophecies written hundreds of years before were fulfilled in the person of Jesus. 
Now, there are all kinds of prophecies in the Bible. But there are something around 325 or so prophecies in the Old Testament that specifically talk about Jesus and the Messiah. I want you to think about this. The Old Testament itself was finished around 450 B.C. And we know for a fact that it was, you know, particularly written in Hebrew, translated into Greek, which is the Septuagint. We have the Septuagint around 250 B.C., so within a 250 years or so from when the last Old Testament book was written, copies were being made into Greek. And these prophecies were written down. And a lot of these prophecies, 325 of them or so, specifically talk about Jesus. Things like Isaiah 7.14, that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. And interestingly enough, even one that Peter claims when he's writing this book. Because in Psalm 2.7 it says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son today, I've begotten you. As Psalm 2 prophesies, what ultimately would be recorded in Matthew and what Peter would testify here, like the word said, this. Even things when we have uh, uh, psalms uh, that describe crucifixion. The psalms that des define crucifixion were written hundreds of years before crucifixion itself was even invented. And yet the Messiah would die. I want you to think about this. Once again, we're going to nerd out just a little bit. I just want you to understand God and the way that he works. If you only just took eight of these prophecies about the Messiah, and you were like, what's the statistical likelihood that one man could fulfill these eight prophecies? Pick any eight that you want, from the town Bethlehem, before Bethlehem existed, uh, uh, and all those things, to, and even if it did exist, that you would know that this one man would be here, born of a virgin, yada, 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 all these things, his name, all that kind of stuff. Just pick... Any of those 300, eight of any of those 325, that would be like 1 to the uh, 10 to the 17th power. It would be like 1 with 17 zeros behind it. To put your mind around like what it would be like to get that right. It would be like taking the state of Texas and filling it, eh, I don't know, two or three feet high with silver dollars or quarters. Pick your, pick your coin. And then you took a marker or a Sharpie and you marked one of those coins. You tossed it anywhere in the state. Then you blindfolded somebody and said, you can walk as far as you want. Whenever you stop, reach down and pick up one coin. And that that coin would actually be the one that you marked with a Sharpie. That's the statistical likelihood that one person could fulfill just eight of those. There are 325 prophecies written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. I want you to wrap your mind that when a prophecy was written, in order for those things to be fulfilled, that means that God's hand was guiding our history. And so we go back to, just throw up that Vody Bauckham quote real quick on the screen. And this, by the way, I think is the reason why I believe what I believe. 
He says, and I agree, that I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They reported supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claimed that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. And that leaves us in an interesting place here today because the question then becomes, like, what do you believe? Do you believe God and the testimony that is written in Scripture? Do you believe that it's accurate? Do you believe that it's uniquely uh, recorded and put together unlike any other document that we've ever had in human history and the supernatural divine claims that it makes uh, however difficult they may seem at times to wrap your head around they certainly did happen as a historical fact I think I mentioned this on Easter, but even down to there were oftentimes people who questioned whether or not Herod was actually a historical figure until they found his tomb and his seal. And then they were like, did he really take a census? And then they found on his seal his list of great achievements. And it's like, I took two censuses while I was in office. Oops. Like, there's a lot of spiritual things in the Bible, and it talks about fruit of the Spirit and spiritual gifts. That's all good stuff, but I need you to understand, this actually happened. Just as we are sitting right here, Jesus and the disciples were real people. There were actual blind people who were made to see, and the people that were around them had known that Pookie had been blind since he was born. Like, everybody knew him as the blind kid around the corner. And then one day, Jesus shows up, and the blind kid can see. There were people who had leprosy that everybody knew them as the town leper. Don't come anywhere near us. You have to yell leper everywhere that you went. And here's the part that gets interesting, and I'm coming to an end. Even at times when people disagreed with Jesus, like the religious leaders, they had a hard time explaining how the sick people that they had known had always been sick were no longer sick. Oh, there goes the guy that can't walk. He's been begging forever. I remember him in grade school. Yeah, he's been right there. And yet all of a sudden, the dude that had the shriveled up legs has regular legs. And he's jumping around. And they're asking, how did this happen to you? And he's like, well, Jesus healed me. I don't like that answer. Don't tell anybody. Excuse me? I've been unable to walk my whole life. Of course I'm going to tell people. And this story would circulate. Next thing you know, some doctor named Luke goes, "Uh, you know what? Let me go interview that guy. Let me go talk to his mama. Let me write this thing down. When he wrote those things down and the church was growing, they'd be like, well, hey, I got a letter from Paul. You got that? You want to trade letters? They would trade. They would copy it. They'd send it back. Then James would write something, and the church in Thessalonia was like, oh, can we get that letter from James? Sure, I got this letter from Paul. They would trade. They would copy it. They'd write it down. The next thing you know, we've got these copies of these letters claiming these supernatural things. And so I'll close with this. Do you believe God's word? 